News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Christina Greer and Alex Brooklyn. It's Wednesday. There's lots happening in New York. Alex, fill us in, please, on all the news. Well, uh, the news is kind of interesting today. There's a lot of it. The Daily News reported that the MTA actually didn't save any money whatsoever by closing the overnight subway service that's a hallmark of New York's, you know, unsleepiness. We spent a lot of money on cleaning services back when we thought the virus lasted on surfaces for five hours and we shouldn't wear masks. We spent a lot of money on bus service. The subway kept running overnight for cops and MTA workers. So we didn't actually save any money in the now very in trouble uh, MTA by shutting down our overnight service, which is kind of no. But we got sanitation theater. We got to push some homeless people out at night, um, which was definitely a big part of the idea. Not that that seems to have worked super well, because it seems like all those homeless people just return right when the system opens again. Um, I mean, we've talked about this before. How like closing down the subways at night kind of really revealed the city's reliance on the subway system to keep homeless New Yorkers warm and housed and how that kind of was just undeniable once they closed uh, for the evening. Also, speaking of homelessness, the Upper West Side Open Hearts Initiative is going to do something pretty interesting. They are going to hold a mayoral forum that will take place at the Lucerne, specifically on homelessness. And uh, most of the questions are from homeless New Yorkers. So... I thought that was a good one to give a shout out to. It's going to happen on uh, February 4th, 5.30 p.m. We'll post the link. Let's see. What else is going on? The Walking While Trans Bill is going to be repealed. Um, little Primer 1976 bill allowing law enforcement to, in my opinion, target people based on their appearance and to assume said people were, quote, loitering for the purpose of prostitution. It's primed to be repealed sooner rather than later. It was scheduled to go in with the state budget, but it's coming up sooner than that. So, And Cuomo will end up signing it. So it's, it's, it's a pretty big shift. Um, without getting to the politics of this any more generally, which, which are, are complicated and I don't think we want to do in just a very brief episode, I will say that at the Daily Beast and other newsrooms I've worked at, anytime there's stories that involve uh, sex work or prostitution, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, there's always this issue with getting clip art of like uh, extremely high heels, like silhouetted people and short skirts that are meant to signify visually prostitutes, but are actually the people who are going to the incredibly expensive clubs on Chelsea on any given Friday or Saturday night. And, and a great deal of annoyance in like more political circles about these sorts of shorthands that actually translate to some of the issues this bill is supposed to be dealing with that, you know, sort of going from this assumption that anyone dressed this way must be out and, and selling sex. I mean, Last I didn't see Sarah here, Jessica Parker being arrested every second while shooting sex in the city. And certainly her heels were yeah. a lot higher than a lot I've seen on Roosevelt Avenue. The visual signifiers have not caught up with the internet in the last 30 years. So with the sale of both drugs and sex, like what happens outside versus what happens inside, and thus the spillover effects in communities and all that stuff have shifted pretty uh, significantly, I think, whereas the the, the sort of visual iconography of those conversations has not, which has been interesting. 
It's not a conversation that's going to go away. There's like legitimate concerns on many sides for whether decriminalizing sex work would be empowering or inherently exploitative. But a Manhattan DA candidate, Eliza Orleans, I hope I'm getting that right, she just unveiled a policy platform to decriminalize sex work. And that is kind of bold for a DA candidate. It's not something that Eric Gonzalez was committed to. It's not something that Melinda Katz was committed to. So I'm curious how that's going to fly when we start talking more about the Manhattan DA stuff. Um, The vaccine. The mayor is advocating for the federal government to use the Defense Production Act to force companies like Merck that just said that they were shutting down their vaccine experiments to start producing the vaccines that we know actually work. He wants the supply to increase, and we think that's pretty much going to happen under Biden. Um, There's been a lack of information coming from the mayor's office about the racial and income of the New Yorkers that are receiving the vaccine. And the Gothamist reported that originally any data that was available showed huge disparity between like white and minority New Yorkers. The mayor kind of shot back to the New York press corps today saying that they had to wait for the information that it was the scrupulous nature of the mayor's department that was impeding the timeliness of this information. They must make sure all the info is accurate. Uh, and he'd also claimed that Gothamist had information from early on when only healthcare workers had access to it and a lot of people. He kept like referencing that a lot of people are denying the vaccine, which I don't doubt. So I have a couple important things to say here. The first is – the Gothamist, uh, I believe, is a misnomer like the Batman. Um, I, I don't just don't think you want the uh, definite article article there. Um, anyone with with bravery who's willing to don the suit and fight crime at night can be the Gothamist. And shout out, of course, to uh, Jake Offenhartz and uh, Gwen Hogan and uh, all the other guests we've had on from just Gothamist. Um, hey, the vaccine stuff is really tricky. We will see what these numbers are like when the mayor does finally reveal them again uh, later this week, he's promised. Uh, Maybe even by the time you hear this on Thursday. In a minute, we're going to be talking with Sean Donovan, who would like to be our next mayor. But last week, we talked to Andrew Yang. And uh, some of you have heard, I'm sure, you know, Professor Christina Greer had some questions for him about how he handled himself and about how his uh, supporters handled themselves online. And Right after that, uh, Andrew Yang, who got through the whole presidential cycle without having to do this, as there were issues with the Yang gang and how they confronted people online and occasionally offline, uh, he put out a whole code of conduct for how he'd like his followers to comport themselves, to not swarm, not be overaggressive, not use foul language, and and to try to behave with a a certain basic human dignity, which I thought was nice, but... uh, arguably overdue. Chrissy, I'd love your thoughts on this, given uh, that I'm connecting the dots between your conversation and uh, his gentle reminder to his folks. Yeah, we'll see. And we'll see if it works. You know, um, it's just been fascinating because, you know, anytime I mentioned Andrew Yang during the presidential, it was met with an onslaught of really aggressive comments in my social media feed. And so it's been fascinating to talk to local New York journalists who are just now experiencing the effects of the Yang Gang. And they're sort of like, why aren't other candidates fans or supporters as rabid or ravenous or 
you know, hyper-aggressive and inappropriate as Andrew Yang's, which I thought it was quite fascinating because they always CC him on these hyper-aggressive tweets, um, but he was completely unaware of their bad behavior. So we'll we'll see how they shake out in these next few months, especially as, you know, the critiques of Andrew Yang uh, get more and more intense, not just from reporters, but by his opponents as well. Um, I have one quick shout out to give. As you guys may or may not know, I produce another podcast uh, called Surveillance and the City. I know. I'm a traitor to FAQ. It's true. But uh, they have... You FA quit. I don't FA quit. I just FA part-time. So (laughs) they've embarked on a campaign with Brad Holman uh, called Ban the Scan, which is calling on New York City to ban the use of facial recognition by all government agencies. Um, It's pretty interesting. You can go find out more about it at bantheScan.amnesty.org. If you know about Albert Fox Khan, who's been a frequent FAQ guest, he is very much into educating everybody about the evil dystopian tech that our law enforcement uses, and I would urge everyone to check it out. So that's my plug, shameless, my shameless plug. And with that, Sean Donovan. (laughs) Joining us now is Sean Donovan, who led the New York City Department of Housing, Preservation, and Development from 2004 to 2009, then was HUD secretary under uh, President Obama from 2009 to 2014, and then was the director of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, through 2017. Um, welcome to the pod. You're running for mayor of New York. Back here, fill us in on uh, returning to New York, why you're running for mayor, how that's going so far, and what distinguishes you from the other candidates in this crowded field, please. And we'll keep rolling from there. Thanks, Harry. And uh, it's such a pleasure to join you and Christina today. I am back in New York, back in Brooklyn, where I raised my kids, and back to the city that I grew up in. And one of the reasons I love this city and why I want to be mayor at this moment is that I grew up in the city at a different time of crisis. I watched homelessness exploding on the streets around me as I walked to school. I watched neighborhoods like the South Bronx, Central Brooklyn, and Harlem crumble, literally in some cases, burning to the ground. And that lit a fire in me to go to work on behalf of the city that I love. I I started volunteering in a homeless shelter in college. I came back right after I finished school to work at a nonprofit, rebuilding those very same neighborhoods that I'd seen burning as a kid. And that really started a 30-year career of public service in moments of crisis for this city and, and for this country. And I believe that experience in crisis gives me a unique perspective on leadership and what New Yorkers are demanding at this moment. I, uh, you know, I try not to take it personally, like disaster seems to follow me where I go in public service, but uh, I was housing commissioner in the wake of 9-11 when the worst housing crisis of our lifetimes hit New York and the entire country. President Obama asked me to lead the recovery when Sandy hit our shores and my neighbors and friends in Brooklyn lost their homes, their businesses, 
Uh, one even lost his daughter in the storm. President Obama asked me to lead the entire federal recovery effort. And, uh, you know, as they say, no good deed goes unpunished. He then asked me to lead the $4 trillion federal budget. And three weeks later, Ebola emerged. And there I was in the Situation Room with Dr. Fauci, Tom Frieden, our other health leaders, our military leaders, President Obama, Vice President Biden, making sure that an emerging global health threat didn't become a pandemic that cost tens of thousands of New Yorkers their lives. And so I really believe that I am unique in this race in my experience through crisis when New York is facing perhaps the greatest crisis of my lifetime. So, so okay, go ahead, Harry. Seven. Just one more thing here, and then uh, over to Professor Greer. Um, one and a half. So, <laughs> what are New Yorkers demanding at this moment? And can you clarify when you came back from Washington until New York? Uh, you know, started getting your mail here when you were registered to vote here, all of that. So, um, I think what New Yorkers are hungry for right now is a public servant, not a politician. I think we've seen that it's not enough to have a mayor who is committed to equity, to closing the yawning racial wealth gaps and other disparities we see in our city, but a mayor who actually walks the walk, who has a record of getting big things done in moments of crisis. Um, and, and knows that it is in these moments of crisis that the potential for change is actually most possible. Uh, President Obama used to say to us, never let a crisis go to waste. And what he meant is that in these moments, like we're experiencing right now in New York, there's enormous pain, uh, enormous loss, but there is also the potential to see the world differently and to demand uh, a better New York as we recover. I like to say we need to not only repair and, and rebuild this city, but to reimagine it as a city that works for everyone. Uh, so that's what I think New Yorkers want at this moment. As I said, I'm a, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, um, grew up here, raised my kids here. When I finished the Obama administration, we grappled with the choice. I had two boys in high school and we remained in, in DC for a little bit of time. Uh, my wife actually stayed in Washington to let our, our younger son finish high school, but I moved back to Borham Hill uh, to right here on Bond Street two years ago and uh, have been in the city through that whole time, not only running for mayor, but also trying to make sure that this city is a better city. I started working to improve public housing. I worked to make sure every New Yorker was counted in the census. And when the pandemic hit, I raised over a million dollars and started a program called Common Table that gets neighborhood restaurants in the hardest hit communities around New York cooking hot, fresh meals to be delivered directly to New Yorkers' doors so they wouldn't have to go wait hours in line at a soup kitchen to get a decent meal. So, Sean, um, it's interesting because in my research, you know, I've asked around and lots of folks like you, but they don't live in New York. <laughs> so it's like, I'm curious as to who your base is, right? Because, you know, we've all been in these forums together. I mean, well, we've been in the audience, you've been in the forum. And so it sort of reminds me of July 2013, when 
I was interviewing all the candidates and de Blasio was essentially in like fourth or fifth place. But he had this big issue called stop and frisk. And so I was like, well, you know, who's your base? Why should we pay attention to you? Because it doesn't seem like anyone is resonating necessarily with your message. And he was like, no, 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 don't, don't worry. Stop and frisk is, is, is happening. Like people are resonating with it. And, and lo and behold, it did sort of catch fire in August. And then we know the rest is history. So who would you say your base would be in this race? And kind of what's the issue that you think will catch fire and sort of push you up into the conversation of Sean Donovan is one to watch? So Christina, you rightly point out that I have deep relationships across the country. I obviously have very, very deep relationships in the Biden-Harris administration, not only directly with the president and the vice president, who I've worked with side by side on some of the toughest issues in the country. Uh, nearly every single senior appointment in the administration is someone who's not just a colleague, but, but is a friend. And I have a unique ability to get New Yorkers the help we desperately need at this moment. Just last month, when Congress was debating the latest COVID relief package, I was on the phone with leaders in Congress on both sides of the aisle, making sure that we got the eviction moratorium extended so that New Yorkers wouldn't lose their homes. I helped to negotiate $25 billion in rental assistance, expanded food aid, help for the MTA. And so even as I'm running, I'm putting those relationships to work to try to make sure New York recovers faster and stronger. But I also have the deepest history in this race of working in communities that have been left behind for too long. I, I mentioned at the outset, right after school, I came back and started working with a nonprofit in the Bronx and central Brooklyn. I, I did that because Bishop Johnny Ray Youngblood, who I met as a student, put me to work financing over 5,000 Nehemiah homes that allowed black and brown families moving out of public housing to buy their first home, build wealth, and to establish uh, a life in, in their communities. I, I started working with Ana Vincente at Nos Quedamos in the South Bronx. And so, yes, I have uh, relationships at the grass tops. I also have the deepest relationships at the grassroots. And that's why you've seen not only uh, Bishop Youngblood, Ana Vincente, but a broad range of clergy and community leaders who have joined my campaign, who are actively working with me to build the campaign of ideas. And I really think it's that combination of the deepest relationships in neighborhoods around this city that started almost 30 years ago at the very beginning of my career with the national relationships that I have. In terms of how that translates to victory, what I would say, first of all, is in this moment where for the first time New Yorkers are going to be choosing their mayor through ranked choice voting, what is critical is not that you just have a specific base. Obviously, I have very deep roots in Brownstone, Brooklyn, where I've lived for a couple decades raising my kids. I also have deep roots in Manhattan, where I grew up. I have very deep roots in the, in the South Bronx and across the Bronx. That's where I announced my campaign at Via Verde, as I said, with many community leaders in the Bronx. So I, I believe I have deep pockets of a base, but in ranked choice voting, 
you have to get to 50% of New Yorkers to win. You have to run a campaign, not only that reaches every part of the city, but inspires people that you actually have a vision to, to rebuild at this moment. And, and I think um, we don't have to look, we don't have to go searching for what the issue is at this moment for New Yorkers. It's COVID and the underlying disparities, racial uh, disparities on wealth, on economic success uh, for immigrants that have been exposed. They have been there for decades, but we are focusing on them now, rightly so more, because of the disproportionate devastation that we saw in communities of color. And I think what is unique about me again is that those are issues I've worked on for decades. Just yesterday, President Biden announced that there would be a renewed focus on fair housing. The two rules that he specifically called out in his executive order are rules that I created as HUD secretary. Um, When Donald Trump still had a Twitter account, he was attacking (laughs) Joe Biden for, quote unquote, destroying the suburbs because he wanted to make sure black and brown people could live wherever they chose. That's my work. I, I led that effort under President Obama to give real meaning to the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And I think New Yorkers are looking for a progressive who actually has made progress on racial equity, on homelessness, on LGBTQ issues, where I was the first cabinet secretary in history to endorse marriage equality. All of those progressive issues are issues where they, I think they will see a mayor who hasn't just talked the talk, but has walked the walk. And that's who gotcha. I am. So who's the last mayor? Because there's been a lot of talk about it uh, among this group of candidates, including yourself. Uh, but I, I've been trying to think about this. Who, who's the last mayor whose relationships with Washington made a, a material difference in the uh, lives of regular New Yorkers? I, I have my, my theory for who it is, but I'm interested in who you would say. Well, um, when was the last time we had a global pandemic where the city was struggling in the way that that it is? I don't think it's ever been as important as it is right now to have a mayor who can get New York City the help it deserves from Washington, D.C. I I think we really are a unique moment. And, you know, think about this. You think we'll still be in a unique moment 12 months from now because it's this interesting lag where we're probably going to know the mayor in June, but that person isn't going to be mayor until a little more than a year from right now. Well, there's no question that the economic devastation will still be here. Hopefully, we'll all be vaccinated. Literally, as we were just getting ready to start here, I found out that my mother-in-law was able to get the vaccine after having an appointment uh, in the Bronx canceled last week. And obviously, we need a mayor who can do a better job leading and managing vaccine administration and a whole range of other things. But hopefully, by the time the next mayor takes office a year from now, we will have the pandemic itself under control, but the economic devastation will absolutely still be with us and we will be recovering our educational gaps and the trauma that our kids have been through. All of those will be things that will be critical and and we will still absolutely need the help from Washington. And, and Harry, you, you raised a Is really good point. matter who's we, mayor to get that help? I, I just keep trying to think this through. Like, like do you think that Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, whomever is going to bring more to New York if you're mayor and leading that conversation? Really? So let me just be very specific on, yeah. a, on a few examples. I mentioned at the outset that 
I created a, a food program this past year to get restaurants cooking in our hardest hit neighborhoods. When we designed it, I knew that we could get FEMA aid to pay for those meals and built that program in a way that that was possible. And in fact, while we didn't have the partnership from this mayor that we needed in New Orleans, in California, and many other places, that design enabled the federal government to pay for those emergency meals and to expand it to get restaurants cooking, to get restaurant workers back to work, to get people who were unable to put food on the table, hot, fresh meals. The incoming Homeland Security Secretary is Ali Mayorkas, someone I've worked with very closely as a supporter on my campaign. I have been reaching out to him to make sure that FEMA is able to reimburse for those meals in a way that gets 100% of the costs to New York City. That is the kind of very specific thing that doesn't happen in a phone call just to the president or to Chuck Schumer. It happens with really knowing the folks that make government work. Let me give you another example. We have a $40 billion deficit in our public housing in New York City. And we need a mayor who understands how to get not just a call into Congress, but can work with the team at HUD to get exactly the kind of Section 8 assistance that we need to be able uh, to make that happen. And so it is not just about having a phone number. It's about having the knowledge of how the federal budget works, of who is in positions of actually working on those issues and putting those relationships to work for New Yorkers, whether it's to fix public housing, to feed folks who are, who are hungry. And, and let, let's be clear here that New York State, including New York City, sends $23 billion a year more to Washington, D.C. every year than we get back in return. It is time for New York to finally get the help it deserves in this moment of need. So it's interesting, Sean, because, you know, two of your opponents also sort of pull the the Biden-Harris card as well, right? So Ray McGuire said explicitly he introduced Kamala to New York so he can call her on the cell phone. He can call Joe Biden on his cell phone. Uh, I don't know if they still have cell phones. They're not Donald Trump. <laughs> but, um, you know, same with Andrew Yang. He he has deep relationships with them. So I'm, I'm still confused as to how we translate these D.C. connections in a real, like Kamala Harris, Senator Harris isn't the same as VP Harris, right? Uh, former VP Biden isn't the same as President Biden in the middle of a global pandemic where everyone has their tin can out. So how on a policy level as mayor would you be able to, A, get access to them and the sort of bureaucratic globe around them to really deliver on specific policy issues that need funding and support? So, Christina, it's one thing to have met Kamala Harris on a debate stage or other members of the Senate on a debate stage. It's a very different thing to have worked side by side in the trenches, not just with the president and the vice president, as I have, but also with nearly every senior official in the Biden-Harris administration. Just to give you a very specific example, Susan Rice, the incoming domestic policy leader for the president. Brian Deese, who's leading the National Economic Council. Both are close friends. Brian was my deputy at, at OMB. 
More than half the cabinet are folks that I know well and have worked with. And and you you said it exactly right. It, you're not going to be able to call the president on every single issue. What separates me is the ability to reach out across the administration with relationships and knowledge of how programs work. I ran the $4 trillion federal budget. And as I said, with food aid, with public housing, with our transit programs, which I helped uh, to recover after Hurricane Sandy, uh, to get Gateway built, which is something that I worked directly on after Sandy to make sure that we put the infrastructure in place to make it possible. All of those things are things where I know all of the senior people who will be working on it and have relationships with them to call and say, not just, here's my tin can, but hey, I've got an idea for you. What about if we do it this way? And that is a fundamental difference. That is also true in Congress. Uh, In December, I was on the phone with three out of the gang of eight senators on both sides of the aisle talking through with them why it was so important to extend the eviction moratorium so that New Yorkers wouldn't get thrown out of their homes on January 1st, how to craft the $25 billion in rental assistance so that it would get as quickly as possible to people who are on the verge of being thrown out of their homes, how to craft the MTA assistance and food aid, all of those things. It, it is very different to have a political connection to someone. I have worked in the trenches with these folks on the toughest issues that our city and our country have faced. And I know how to solve these problems in ways that other candidates don't. So b- before you were in the trenches with them, you were, you were in the trenches for about five years with the Bloomberg administration, focusing on, on housing and preservation issues. And at this interesting moment, as you were saying, we, we started off with the housing crisis. By the time you left, I think there were growing concerns again about a, a gentrification crisis. And you could sort of see maybe some of the fruits of that in the, the rise of farther left politicians in uh, parts of Queens and Brooklyn and the Bronx. But I, I'd love to know what lessons – you take from your service with the Bloomberg administration, like what values and practices they had that you'd, you'd be sure to bring to City Hall from your experience there and what values and practices you take care not to repeat that you think needed or still need correction? Really important question, Harry. And I think, you know, one of the obviously most devastating issues we saw emerging from those years when I was housing commissioner, we saw the the beginning of the mortgage crisis and began to see in Southeast Queens, in Central Brooklyn, in the South Bronx, the devastating impacts of predatory lending. And one of the things that I did very early on in that crisis was to create something called the Center for New York City Neighborhoods. It it was the first nonprofit in the country, actually, focused on bringing housing counseling, legal assistance, restructuring to mortgages at a citywide basis that could really start to reverse those, those impacts. And I think it was one of the reasons that President Obama chose me as housing secretary is because it was one of the more innovative efforts. And it really did work to preserve a significant amount of of housing to keep many people in their homes, particularly black and brown homeowners in, in the hardest hit neighborhoods. But what I think it exposed is 
that we were underinvesting as a city and as a country in the financial assistance and the legal assistance that homeowners and renters need. It was one of the reasons that I made it a central part of the mortgage settlement that I worked on with Kamala Harris uh, when she was attorney general. And it's one of the things I think we really need to expand and invest in more is legal assistance. It's something the federal government could do more of, but it's also something that we need to be doing more of at the at the city level. Uh, legal aid, housing counseling are lifelines for so many New Yorkers on the risk of, of losing their homes. I also would say, obviously, there were lots of other lessons about the national issues of regulation and what we need to do to hold banks accountable, um, how we need to change our banking system. It's something I worked uh, with Elizabeth Warren very closely on when she was setting up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I think there are lots of lessons there. They're not uh, they're lessons for our country mostly and not for for a mayor, but uh, absolutely learned that. And then the last thing I would say, you know, we had one of the, we had the most aggressive affordable housing program in the country. And homelessness is an issue I've worked on all my career. During the time that I was housing commissioner, we were able to keep homelessness stable in the city. It did not increase, but what we saw is that it, is, it has exploded since then to, to the point where we have more homeless people sleeping on our streets than since the Great Depression. And I think the lesson I learned there and that I applied, frankly, in the, in the Obama administration is that if you think you're going to solve homelessness with homeless programs alone, you are destined to fail. That, that to really solve homelessness, what you need is an all-of-government effort because it isn't just a housing problem. It is a criminal justice problem. It's a mental health problem. It is a substance abuse problem. And I took that lesson. And when I led the homelessness strategy for President Obama, we made dramatic progress on, on homelessness. We, we cut street homelessness and family homelessness by about 25%. In more than 80 cities and states, we ended veteran homelessness, not reduced it, but ended it. And so what I learned is that Homelessness is a solvable problem. We know how to house anyone. Now we have to house everyone. And we do that by reimagining our right to shelter in New York City as a right to housing and by bringing every part of the government to the table to solve it. So this, this every part of the government, I've heard you mention a lot of names in Washington, D.C. But one name I haven't heard you mention is our dear friend Andrew Cuomo in Albany. So... Where does he factor in in this holistic picture of, of yours for the city specifically, whether or not it's homelessness or housing, which I want to circle back to and, and talk about NYCHA just for a second. But, you know, all the things that we know, yes, you can try and sidestep Andrew Cuomo, but Andrew Cuomo is always going to be Andrew Cuomo. So what is your strategy as the 110th mayor of New York City to work with or work around Andrew Cuomo as governor of New York? Well, Christina, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, and let's just start with the fact that it is completely unacceptable to have a mayor of the city of New York and a governor of the state of New York. Same party. Put, same party uh, to put their fights ahead of the lives of New Yorkers. And that's happened too often. You know, uh, people say it's like watching two toddlers in the sandbox. 
I have two boys, and if they'd behaved like that in the sandbox when they were toddlers, they would have been in big yeah. trouble. I've said from uh, day one, they just need five minutes with my mother, and she straightened it all out, but they haven't asked. <laughs> I don't well, think that was going to be my strategy, actually, Christina, that I was going <laughs> to be my answer. Um, I heard about your mom. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But look, this it may surprise you. My first job in government was for Andrew Cuomo. And I've been able to work effectively with him over the years. When I'll tell you a funny story. When I was uh, housing secretary and President Obama asked me to lead the federal recovery efforts after Sandy, I, I said to him, let me get this straight, Mr. President. You want me to work with Andrew Cuomo, Mike Bloomberg, Bill de Blasio, who's coming in as mayor, and Chris Christie? He said, yeah, Sean, you'll be okay. You speak New York. You'll do all right. And I did do all right. I was able to work very effectively with Andrew because the truth is Andrew gets things done. And if you are willing to share credit, to be able to put your ego aside and really make sure that it's focused on getting things done, you can get things done with him. The same thing is true with the state legislature. And I'll just give you one example. We were talking about homelessness a moment ago. One of the reasons we did make progress on homelessness when I when I was housing commissioner here is because I was able to help lead the creation of what's called the New York, New York 3 agreement. It's a city-state agreement that covers the cost of services in what we call supportive housing. Housing that has the sort, unlike a shelter, has the services that homeless folks need to attend to their mental health, their substance abuse, and other issues. That New York, New York 3 agreement is a model we should replicate. We should create what's called a a new New York, New York 5 agreement where the state and the city will share equally the costs of the services in supportive housing. If we don't do that, we're never going to solve homelessness in this city. So as as former housing commissioner and, and director of HUD, I really thought that you would be the candidate where when we when we hear about the Lucerne, oftentimes it's either Scott or Maya who's out there. And so I really thought that you would be the leader on all things NYCHA and all things homelessness and helping us figure out this kind of uh, tenuous housing situation that far too many New Yorkers are in. So what would your solution or beginning stages of a solution be for NYCHA in particular because we know that so many families, especially in the pandemic, uh, in NYCHA are really struggling. So can you address that specifically and what policies are you looking at uh, yeah. in that direction? Thank you, Christina. And, and, and I do want to say I'm, I'm glad you raised the Lucerne. Um, I've been there multiple times, spent time with Shams DeBaron and the other men living at the Lucerne. Uh, most importantly, I was asked to be an expert witness in the case because of my experience working on homelessness and helped contribute to the recent victory they won that's going to allow the men to stay at the Lucerne, where they're finally, as I said a moment ago, they're getting the services, the jobs, uh, the help that they need, not just to be housed and get off the street, but to actually get their lives back on track. And so uh, it is shameful that a small group of New Yorkers would stand up and say they're not welcome in our neighborhood. And one of the things that I would do as mayor is make sure that every neighborhood is part of the solution. We can't have wealthy white neighborhoods saying no to homeless folks, to other things that are going to make this city work. Uh, We have to make sure we have a mayor who ensures that every community does its part, does its fair share. 
towards affordable housing, towards ending homelessness, and, and all of those. So I'm I appreciate you you raising it, and I am deeply committed to making sure that this city is fairer on homelessness and other issues. On NYCHA specifically, one of the things that is unique about me in this race is that I've actually worked with mayors across the country and fixed public housing. Uh, San Francisco was in worse shape than NYCHA when I started as HUD secretary, and we were able to make dramatic progress. But what it takes is a local leader uh, a mayor who is absolutely committed to that. And unfortunately, public housing has not been at the center of the city's housing plan. Uh, and, and let's remember, Christina, there are 500,000 New Yorkers who live in public housing. That's more than in the city of Atlanta. It is the single most precious affordable housing resource we have in this city. And it has to be a top issue for a mayor. What that means is that instead of having it be the poor stepchild of housing policy in the city, it has to be right at the center. I would be the first mayor who would actually make public housing part of the city's housing plan. I've committed to dedicating $2 billion in city capital towards public housing and making sure that it is a central focus by bringing it together under one deputy mayor with all of the agencies that touch housing and homelessness. That's never been done in the, in the city. So, so would NYCHA be central, I'm sorry, to your, uh, would NYCHA be central to this, uh, this shift from a right to shelter to a right to housing as you're envisioning that? We do need to be dedicating more units to families in particular that are at risk of homelessness or have fallen into homelessness. So yes, I would do more to make uh, sure NYCHA is part of it. Let's also remember NYCHA has 100,000 Section 8 vouchers. And, and we almost always talk about NYCHA just for public housing. Those vouchers have to be a central part of the solution uh, to homelessness. And in fact, I've worked with the Biden housing team on crafting a proposal for universal voucher access. When I was OMB director, I actually put forward a proposal to increase Section 8 assistance by $10 billion. And I think we absolutely need a mayor who can work with Congress, work with the administration to get more Section 8 vouchers. It, uh, fixing public housing isn't the only thing we need to do at NYCHA. So that would absolutely be part of it. But let's be clear. No amount of city or state money is going to close the $40 billion budget gap that we have. The only way to solve it is to bring Section 8 resources to the table. And that is what I would propose. It's what, what about I would be able to taxing millionaires? Get I, I <laughs> absolutely believe... And I, I fought for this as budget director. We should reverse the Trump tax cuts. We should be asking the wealthy to pay more uh, nationally and in this city. But Christina, let's be clear. $40 billion is a gigantic hole. And we're not going to close that all with city and state resources. We need more help from the federal government. And Section 8 is the only realistic way to get there. I actually believe that what Greg Russ has proposed to create a preservation trust that would allow us to bring more Section 8 resources to uh, public housing is a, is a good idea. 
But we also need to go farther than that. Obviously, it's not just money. Right now, uh, I, I was at Nustrin Houses yesterday, uh, giving out food, talking with the resident leader there. And it is absolutely clear that we need a different approach to managing NYCHA as well. Right now, you call, you've got a leak in your shower. By the time somebody actually comes to fix it, it's now become a black mold and yeah. asthma problem for your kid instead of getting fixed. So this is a management problem as well. Um, I like to say Fiorella LaGuardia is one of my idols, uh, former mayor. He used to say there's no Republican or Democratic way to take out the trash. We need a mayor who understands that some problems are just rolling up your sleeves and getting to work, fixing things and managing them. Not about ideology. It's about making things work. And that's the kind of leader that I've been. That is something we need to do. Last thing I would just say on NYCHA, huge opportunity to create jobs for the residents of NYCHA. We ought to have solar panels on every rooftop. That's a lot of rooftops in NYCHA. We ought to be on the cutting edge of sustainable practices. We need to replace the plumbing, the electrical, uh, the heating in in almost all of uh, these units. Why not leapfrog to the very latest sustainable technology, train NYCHA residents, work with our unions to make sure that we have cutting edge practices and we're creating jobs with that money that's coming in. That's also a big part of the proposal I put forward on NYCHA. So we know that's going to take a lot of money. I still think that, you know, yes, taxing millionaires isn't going to close the gap, but I mean, I think we might want to start. We can try. We can figure it out. Speaking of money, though, hey, where's your Sean? So what's going on with these matching funds? And are you confident that you can get matching funds by the next filing period? Absolutely. I'm I'm completely confident about that. Let's be clear. I filed in February. (laughs) You totally work for Obama because he says all the time, let's be let's be clear. I I did pick that up. Uh, I I get uh, I get a little crap from my boys about that pretty regularly. So, let's be clear. Okay, uh, so you. Sean, did, let's be did clear. Did they ask you to say that, Christina? <laughs> no, I just, have you been talking it's to them? It's very Obama esque. You've been talking it's, to my boys. It's very Obama esque. So, where's the money, Sean? What's happening? Where's Where's it going to come? So, from? I filed in February. I outraised yeah. everybody else in the race combined in the first filing period this year, and in the second filing, the one we just completed, I raised more than any other candidate has raised in any period of this race, almost a million dollars, who's participating in the campaign finance system, the matching system. So there is no question that I have the capacity to raise the maximum in this race. On the matching funds, unlike some other candidates, we've been saving our money and being very careful. We only started our digital program in December. And we made dramatic progress. We, we have far more donors than we need. And we are very close to hitting uh, the matching funds. And this is, it's, it's not a race, Christina. It's not like you have to meet it by a The question is, are, once you meet it, you've unlocked that. And we have plenty of time to do that. Um, we've been careful about our spending, careful about, uh, you know, many candidates have been buying big lists of uh, donors and others. That's not the way we've been working. We've been building it as a grassroots effort. And we will absolutely get to the to the matching. And we will be one of a very small number of candidates in this race who can actually spend the maximum allowed under the matching program. 
So this brings us to our lightning round. Thank you again for, for, for taking the time and going through some of this uh, substantially. Some of these are, are yes, no. Some of these are probably a sentence or two, but but please think lightning. Um, <laughs> and I'll start off with the tricky one for that. So what would a right to housing cost? Uh, how would that be established in law? And how supportive would that housing be in one sentence or less? <laughs> well, the crazy thing, Harry, is you not only save lives by reimagining a right to shelter as a right to housing, you also save money. We've proved this. And now, how can that be, your listeners will say? And I know this may be more than one sentence, but I'll try to be quick. It is actually more expensive for people to be living on our streets or in shelter than to house them. Because where do they get their health care? In our emergency rooms. They cycle in and out of Rikers, out of the mental health wings of our public hospitals. There is huge evidence now that you can actually save money by investing in supportive housing because you break the cycle of mental health crises, of substance abuse, of uh, incarceration in a way that is really powerful. So some people say we can't afford a right to housing now. I say we can't afford not to. So is the NYPD too big, too small, or the right size? Look, we clearly need to reimagine policing. Uh, We need police who can keep our communities, particularly our black and brown communities safe, but also respect them. But we also need to reduce what we're asking the police to do, which includes reducing funding. That means they shouldn't be patrolling the hallways of our schools. They shouldn't be criminalizing homelessness. Uh, I was at an open street in the Bronx the other day. 75% of our open streets are the responsibility of the police when we know community organizations do a better job with them. So we absolutely need to reduce uh, what we're spending on the police and, and the role of police. We also need to be reduce, reduce what we're spending in our criminal justice system. We spend almost $600,000 per prisoner at Rikers right now it's and get bad results. I, uh, I, I worked with Obama to try to close the most expensive prison in the world, Guantanamo. Rikers is the second most expensive, and we can get better results by investing in communities and uh, housing, job training, a whole range of other things. Both of them have proven very fucking hard to close. Um, is Kendra's law over, under, or properly applied now? I would say uh, under at this point, but I would uh, – that's a longer conversation than one mm-hmm. sentence. <laughs> one thing you do as mayor to help renters after the eviction moratorium ends. I would dramatically expand rental assistance. Um, I have a proposal to do that uh, to make a more flexible opportunity for people to get assistance. We know that if they're moving uh, a security deposit, it can be a critical thing that isn't currently covered. I would expand to security deposits. I would also provide much more flexible uh, rapid rehousing and prevention uh, money Two families. I would also work very closely with the federal government to make sure that we're getting. We just got 25 billion in rental assistance that cities are going to be able to put to work. I would put that to work effectively, but I would also go back and argue for another 25 billion as well. Last one. Do you support fair fares? I do. Uh, we absolutely need to be ensuring 
that, especially at this moment, when we've had so much job loss that folks can be affordably riding our, our subways and that we get the aid we need to counterbalance that from the federal government. But I also think we need to do much more to be creative about other ways to raise revenue uh, for the MTA. One of the things in my plan, the deal I would make with the governor is to agree to put more city money, not just from congestion pricing, but also from value capture and, and other uh, innovative mechanisms in exchange for the mayor having more control over the MTA to make sure that it meets the city's priorities. You may remember that the number seven line, uh, the extension on the west side of Manhattan, was paid for by city funds. Very, very innovative way to expand uh, transit. And I want to bring those kind of innovative solutions to City Hall. Very last one. Who's the last mayor you voted for in New York City? Uh, to be honest, Bill de Blasio. <laughs> well, at least you, hey, do you have an uh, ID NYC? Uh, I do not. I do not. I have uh, a uh, driver's license right here at 139 Bond Street. But I, I will tell you, uh, Christina, that I am the son of an immigrant. And uh, my dad grew up in Costa Rica and Lima, Peru. He came to this city, uh, had a green card for decades. And uh, when President Obama was elected and I was asked to join the cabinet, he came to me and he said, Sean, I'm finally ready. But I have one condition to become a citizen. I, I want you or President Obama to swear me in. I said, Dad, that would actually be illegal. Uh, not, <laughs> neither of us is allowed to swear you in. But I did get to be the keynote speaker at my dad's induction ceremony as a citizen in the Great Hall on Ellis Island uh, a few years ago. One of the most amazing, amazing moments of my life. And I have to say, um, knowing Ali Mayorkas well, uh, I believe we have a moment of opportunity under the Biden administration, not just to reverse the terrible mistreatment uh, that we've seen, but to actually construct a much more progressive pro-immigrant ag agenda in the city that would allow for voting rights, that would create a public option so that uh, undocumented folks, we have 300,000 undocumented folks in New York City that are not covered by health insurance. Uh, we should cover them. There are many, many things that we can do to make sure beyond IDNYC, which I think has been a great innovation, uh, to make sure that we're finally honoring this as a city of immigrants, the way it was for my dad and the way it should be for every immigrant to this city. All righty. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you. Taking the time. Uh, Hope we'll keep talking and good luck to you uh, out there on this weird, weird <laughs> pseudo campaign trail this year. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, this didn't feel like pseudo campaigning to me to be uh, <laughs> seeing you over Zoom and hearing your voices. So wonderful to be with you both. And I, I really appreciate you having me. Good luck. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Manhattan and Brooklyn. A special thank you to our guest, Sean Donovan, candidate to be the 110th mayor of New York City. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>